I am Kyle Edward Ball, director of Skinamarink, and you're listening to ContraZoom Pod. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. On this podcast, we like to celebrate both Canadian films and Halloween. Last week, we observed the 45th anniversary of the classic John Carpenter slasher film, Halloween. Today, we're looking at some more spooky films. Joining us is Kyle Edward Ball, the writer and director of the surprise indie horror film, Skinamarink. Kyle originally got a start on YouTube recreating people's nightmares they sent him on his channel, Bite Size Nightmares before making the short film Heck. Kyle was gracious enough to submit a ballot for our Greatest Films of All Time poll where he voted for such horror films like The Birds, Mulholland Drive, and of course, The Wizard of Oz. Welcome to the show, Kyle. It's great to finally have you on. It's great to, great to be here. You know, The Wizard of Oz, actually, weird anecdote about that in horror, like, sometimes lay people, like people who aren't like, in film Twitter, like cinephile circles, they provide unique perspectives on things. And one time my ex-boyfriend, he referred to The Wizard of Oz as the first real horror movie, which was like, if you hear it, doesn't make sense. But if you think about it, that's his concept of a horror, which is color, drama, like a certain type of melodrama. So... Yeah. And the witches and the monkey people. Yeah, right. They're so. freaky. I'm I yeah. kind of with him there. I think they're kind of scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My mom refuses to rewatch the movie because she was so traumatized by the flying monkeys when she was a child. Yeah. Uh well that's a shame. It is really such like a a powerful cine- like piece of, of, of cinema. Like there's a reason why of all the like family films made of that era, that one really still stands out. I have to say, I have a hard time with that movie sometimes now because the more that I know about Judy Garland, the more her stuff makes me sad. And so watching that movie, which is like, it is, it isn't a horror. Like there are scary bits to it, but like, it just makes me think a little bit more about that. Like the older that I got when I first saw it, I remember really loving it. And then, yeah, as I got older, it became a little sad. But we're not here to talk about Wizard of Oz. (laughs) So much, actually. Yeah. So uh, I do want to take things back a little bit before we get into today's subject. Back on July 15th, 2022, a full week before Skinamarink had its world premiere at the Fantasia Film Festival, I got a message from Rachel as we are both sifting through the Fantasia program and screeners to decide on what to cover for our podcast episode that week. And it read... Watch Skinamarink. I legit can't remember the last time I was that scared. Sent you the screener. To which I replied, ha ha ha, I'll probably skip it then, because I'm notoriously a chicken and very picky about what horror movies I'll watch, and Rachel telling me it was one of the scariest movies that she'd ever seen was a big no from me, and it took me almost nine months to finally watch your film. 
After Rachel's review went up on Exclaim, the first one that I noticed, I started seeing other reviews pouring in, all claiming the same thing. Your movie was becoming the talk of the, the festival and the horror circuit at the time. And I was wondering if you can take us back to July 2022 and talk about your experience of showing the film for the first time. About a month before, we were in the process of submitting to a handful of festivals, but Fantasia was the big one that I really wanted to get into. And they had already announced their first and second wave of titles. And I thought, okay, it's looking less and less likely. And I had a really bad night where I, I just, I had this feeling like, Oh, maybe this was all for naught. Maybe I failed. Maybe the movie's no good. Um, and then I woke up to an email from Fantasia and it felt like getting the golden ticket, right? Like, and so I was super excited for it. Fantasia, um, they paid for our hotel and my friend Edmund paid for our airfare out there. I'd never been to Montreal before and loved it. Like I love, I loved Montreal. And then, um, Fantasia, they, they did a really good job of making us feel special and important. Like they took us out for dinner beforehand, before the screening, they did a tech demo of the movie in the theater to say, okay, are you okay with the levels of sound? Are you okay with how it's being projected? Like everything they, they, they're, they have a really good system at Fantasia. And then I introed the movie I watched the audience the whole time and I got just a feeling from the audience um, that was very like, this is how I wanted them to react. And then afterwards, very tellingly, because we the screening finished at like 11, like close to midnight on a Thursday during the week. And 80% of the audience stayed for the Q&A, which I thought was fairly strong, right? And then after leaving Fantasia, we got our first handful of reviews from like reputable outlets, all of which were positive. Some, one of which was like a perfect five out of five. And... I told my producer, like, you know, Edmund, there's a chance, like, I don't think every movie that plays at Fantasia gets, like, usually the first handful of reviews from film festivals skew to more positive, mm -hmm. but I, I felt that this was different. And I told Edmund, like, you know, this might be talked about the same way people talk about the Sundance premiere of Blair Witch. Mm -hmm. And that turned out to be correct because it, since it came out, there were so many things that matched up with the Blair Witch release and, and response. So that was cool. Yeah, I absolutely agree with, with that assessment because, you know, Rachel and I cover a lot of film festivals and even Fantasia. We both love Fantasia. And there'll be stuff where like, yeah, that was fun, but like, is it a good movie? I don't know. And so there, there definitely was a different feeling watching the reactions come out about Skin and Marink. And, and you're absolutely right. Thinking about, you know, I wasn't paying attention when Blair Witch came out, but I definitely remember looking back and sort of reading the, the praise that it got and sort of the life it took on after it premiered on Sundance. Yeah, the, the, the Sundance 
the whole and even an interesting thing with Blair Witch is there's an infamous Sundance copy of the movie, which is fairly identical visually to the the theatrical version, but very importantly, the original Sundance version had was had very bad audio. So they used more of the raw actual audio that had been recorded, which would be like, for example, they're, you know, at the beginning of Blair Witch Project, they interview all these townspeople in the original Sundance version. The audio is so bad that you can't even necessarily make out what people are saying. So they'll like interview a waitress and you'll hear the hum of the fridge in the background (laughs) and other stuff too, which, so I was able to get a copy of the Sundance audio version and it's actually not as bad as you'd expect. And I would say helps the movie because it, it sounds a bit more real um, but in 1999, I think the distributor kind of made the easy assessment of, okay, well, a mainstream audience will not sit through audio this bad, right? Like an audience will sit through shaky cam and messy footage, but they won't sit through bad mm-hmm. audio, right? So I think they did make the right, they uh, supposedly, I think, spent $250,000 American to clean up the audio. Wow. And they did a good job, but... You know, that's pretty crazy. Uh, I'm curious for a film that was, you know, crowdfunded and shot on a $15,000 budget over the course of seven days. It then went on and made over 2 million worldwide, was distributed by Shudder, received an exclusive Steelbook DVD and Blu-ray release from Walmart, and a limited run a set of white, blue, and black VHS tapes from Lunchmeat VHS that sold out immediately. How do you feel about the, the way the horror community has embraced your film? Um, it's been basically a dream come true, but it, there's been weird stuff with it too, because obviously the film is presented in a strange kind of unique way, which polarizes audiences. And as a kid, like the, my, the dream was always, oh, I want to be controversial. I want to be edgy. I want, I want, I want walkouts. I want this. I want that. And the weird thing is that happened, but not for the reason that I had hoped for. When I was a kid, I thought, oh, it's going to be so edgy and dark <laughs> and gore and blah, blah, blah. Like all those, I'm going to be like spooky John Waters, right? <laughs> and the thing, the weird poetic kind of irony is that all happened but it was because like a lot of people were like this is just fucking hallways right so (laughs) it was it it, it's weird how stuff happens but it doesn't happen the way you'd hope for right so it's the horror community for the most part has been great but i'd be lying if i said you know i don't get I do occasionally get hate mail and hate tweets and those do get under my skin. But the thing is, you know, if I was thicker skinned, I don't think you get a movie like Skinner Murray, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so 
it's it, it it's a strange strange dichotomy that's for sure but i would say for every one hate comment i get 20 positive so you know i i still really do feel i'm still to this day the luckiest filmmaker on the planet right right now even well after the release so how have you dealt with that though i know that like it's human nature more or less that you know, you said you get one hate message and then you get 20 great ones, but your focus is always you're, you're going to remember the hate one more than you're going to remember the good stuff. And you've had so much amazing things happen to you in a really, really short period of time. Um, but like you said, the movie was kind of divisive and there were people that had strong opinions on the other side. So did you have like good people or people around you trying to like help you out? Or was that just you just trudging through and being like, well, you kind of got to get through it? Yeah, it was kind of just me trudging through. And I yeah. want to be clear to like, it's not the negative reviews or negative comments about the movie that get under my skin. Mm-hmm. It's the people who explicitly message me yeah. or explicitly at me on Twitter. That's what pisses me. Like, if you it's hate so unnecessary, movie, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, like if that's you not, movie, yeah. Like, you're entitled to your opinion. It's the horror community, yeah. right? Like, that's, that's a part of the gig. That's what you're supposed to do but if you explicitly go out of your way to message me like yeah that does piss me off and i i try my best to ignore it i don't even try to block them because then that still feels like they kind of got something they can then screenshot that and say lukey plug yeah right but i'm human and it's hard sometimes right and people are weird with it too particularly with this film they feel this I've had a few times where people very polite, nice will talk to me and talk about how they respect the movie and then like sneak in like, you know, and I really didn't like the movie. And it's like, okay, like, <laughs> like, uh, okay. Th- you didn't need to give that information to me. Right. Like, and it, it's straight. And it's like, okay, it's not, this wasn't, it, it, it's just, bizarre but in the same vein to be fair to them they don't necessarily know the rules of engagement for a movie like this or talking to a director right Mm -hmm. so in their mind maybe they see it as this weird badge of honor or maybe they see it as something i'm emotionally detached from so it's been tricky and i i think i have been getting better at it i think like writing my script for my next movie has grounded me and kept me focused and you know so yeah i think you're being very kind because even if you say that people don't know how to deal with the director it's like you can deal with other human beings and you <laughs> yeah. wouldn't say that like you know what i mean you just don't say that but yeah but there's certain social interactions that they're like people i i really don't think a lot of them are trying to be mean or hurtful and like there's there's different degrees of it right like yeah. i had a Zoom meeting with the people who who um at seed and spark the crowdfunding company because they wanted to do a kind of oh this was a seed and spark success story right and the woman who runs seed and spark said like look i have a four-year-old and a six-year-old kid i could not watch and i was like that's completely fair right like yeah so there's there's different levels and these 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 interactions can be messy right so 
Interesting. Yeah. That's fair. Hey, quiet! It's him again! Jingle bell, jingle bell rock. Listen, you pervert, why don't you go over to Lamb of Kai? They could use a little of this. Jingle bell square in the frosty air. Yeah, I was supposed to meet my daughter here. Her name's Claire Harrison. Do you know her? I'm sure you'll find her at the fraternity house. Uh, so, as I mentioned at the top on this podcast, we like to celebrate both Canadian films and horror. And since you're a horror filmmaker from Edmonton, Alberta, you are the perfect person to have on. Uh, we asked you to name three iconic and influential Canadian horror films. And you gave us uh, the first one being Black Christmas from 1974, directed by Bob Clark. Rituals from 1977, directed by Peter Carter. And Scanners from 1981, directed by David Cronenberg. Before we get into these movies specifically, I'd love to know your experiences with Canadian horror in general and how you gravitated towards them. Well, yeah, it was always Canadian horror. Um, a lot of it I saw through the lens of Cronenberg because he is such a monolith in the Canadian horror mythos since mm -hmm. the 1970s right so he he is kind of our golden boy so he's kind of our john carpenter so to speak like i really like his his late 70s to um late 80s period in particular and outside of that it's really just a handful of of movies that really stand out in certain weird ways right so one in particular was black christmas which growing up i had never really gotten into and then my boyfriend uh or ex-boyfriend i should say now he really liked that one and talked to how atmospheric and cozy it was so as an adult i gave it a second like a thorough actual watch through and it it is a real masterclass in horror and also in atmosphere and also like i don't know if people talk about this enough black christmas is really a, even compared to today and i think rachel might have thoughts on, but like incredibly feminist in a way that horror movie the slasher movies of the 80s really were not like abortion is talked about very frankly in it Mm -hmm. um there's an entire subplot around um the main character's relationship with her boyfriend and how at one point he he um meets her and says you know i i i decided i'm i'm gonna quit college and we're gonna make a go of it together and i'm gonna do this and she says well what about me like you didn't ask me what about what i want to do right and and it really another big thing too is the main characters in it like the sorority right they're all fully developed personalities and fully developed they're not just oh these are the three or five women we we need to see the killer kill right like they're fully developed thoughtful protagonists um not just stereotype and and funny and 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 play off each other in such unique it is so incredibly 
thoughtfully well-written kind of feminist cinema, oddly enough, directed by a, a man who his other claim to fame is a Christmas story. So, and Porky's. Yeah, yeah, and Porky's, yeah. which is not a feminist masterpiece. Right? <laughs> so it's it, kind of weird. Like, I know everyone makes this joke, but he he did two Christmas movies, one happy one, one not happy one, and said, I'm done, and then <laughs> moved on, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, But yeah, Black Christmas is basically the grandfather of all slasher films. It was the direct inspiration for Halloween and countless others. And, and you had actually said in an interview for Fangoria that Black Christmas has a lot of shots where there's just panning. I would refer to it when talking with my director of photography who hadn't seen Black Christmas. This is my Black Christmas shot. So we all know that the film was a direct inspiration on parts of Skinamarink. Uh, and for anyone that doesn't know the plot, it's a sorority house that's terrorized by a stranger who makes frightening phone calls and then murders the sorority sisters during Christmas break. Uh, I'd love to know, you, you were talking about the, the the first time that you saw this film. I'd love to know a little bit more about uh, the, the sort of the inspiration that it had on Skinamarink. Well, a big thing with Black Christmas is there's lots of shots where there is no one seen on screen and you hear them. So you hear people downstairs talking or having drinks on Christmas and, and, and party. And then you see like a shot of a hallway upstairs and a few years ago and the video since I haven't been able to find it, which is a real shame. Someone did a, a compilation of here are all the shots of black Christmas where someone is not present and they edited edited it all together and it is the most atmospheric creepy creeping footage you have ever seen and it's just shots of of a house in i i think it was filmed in montreal um just sort of existing right and the menace of a house and how at night particularly in winter a house can be so big and imposing and the shadows can feel like they stretch forever. And I, I utilized that and copied that for Skinamarink. Uh, I, I think to a certain amount of success and just talking to black Christmas, the amount of atmosphere because atmosphere really does the heavy lifting in black Christmas and I, I, I tried to emulate. And another thing, too, is the panning, right? So it'll shoot someone in a room, and then it'll pan to the hallway, and then it'll pan to another thing, and then it'll pan. It does all this stuff with just the camera work that we're, we don't necessarily think of when we think of horror. In the modern context, when you think of horror, like elegant camera horror work it's often follow shots and tracking shots and dolly shots and not just a simple we have a camera we pan we look over here then we move we look over there then we move we look over there just Mm -hmm. the simple elegance of the camera work in black christmas it's it's very voyeuristic Mm -hmm. uh and I will say it was Black Christmas was filmed completely in Toronto and the house was a University of Toronto. Uh, I don't know if it was a frat house or a sorority house, but it was an old uh, university housing house. Really? I thought it was Montreal too. 
No. Well, no. I think, okay, wait, I think I know what it is. It's based on a supposed real life yes. like story uh, that happened in Montreal. Interesting. So Kyle, did you find when you were trying to like mimic the atmospheric stuff, like any surprising difficulties in doing that? Like when you re- and you kind of maybe develop like a deeper appreciation for Black Christmas because you're like, oh, shit, that was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, a lot of it was shooting stuff and not knowing whether it was going to read in the edit mm. was a big thing, right? Because you can do something like have a house lighted a certain way and pan from point A to point B to point C and timing it, right? Yeah. Without it being too long or too short, right? Like you really had to kind of time it a certain way. So timing was a big thing. Trusting that it would come together in edit and make sense in a certain way was a big thing and also shooting around a house that doesn't necessarily work right so black christmas um i think they had they had full reign of the set the house was decked out to work for it but the problem in my movie was it was set in 1995 and there's only so much you can do to a house currently without having to do something like completely got the kitchen right like we had to shoot around my parents kitchen and avoid it and light it and grade it because my parents kitchen is completely modern all the appliances read as 2000s right so that was another difficulty thing too where i i we had to get creative one thing that I really appreciated with Black Christmas was that the logic was very consistent. It was very impressive how uh, they managed to, as they're doing the, the different kills of, of these women, that it made sense of why they weren't in the picture anymore. So you have someone that's leaving for vacation, so everyone's assumed that she's already gone, or the this person's gone out for the night and won't be coming back, or they're out with their partner, or things like that. And too often I find... In horror movies, there's just no logic. And eventually, the movie sort of catches up where they realize that one person was supposed to be picked up by their father, one of the women, and she never showed up. And that sort of starts the the whole investigation of where she is and what might be going on. But I really appreciate throughout the film, it was very consistent of keeping logic as a focal point to, to not letting the movie go off the rails. Is that something that I know Skinner Rink is very much its own thing, but is that something that you're, you're cognizant about when you're either watching horror movies or when you're writing yourself is figuring a way of, of keeping the logic there? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a tricky thing too, because horror communities in particular will, will watch for it and critique it. And another big thing is it's always hard of how do I keep people at the location without it being unbelievable. And another thing too is how do I feasibly, because another big thing I really like about Black Christmas is they go to the police and the police react realistically right like in horror movies i swear to god someone will be like there's a dead body and the police will be like oh they probably fell right (laughs) just so so ridiculous right like you know in real life the police 
wouldn't be as blasé about these instances and they always have to find this weird circular logic as to why the police aren't taking this obvious crime seriously and in black christmas it's done very smartly and the police are reacting very realistically to what the situation is entailed it's almost as if when they were writing it they said okay what would actually happen in this circumstance in this if we had these characters in this setting at this time of year with these with these this situation how would it pan out and how can we still make it work still make a story out of it right mm-hmm. so that's that was that was a big thing i learned from black christmas is making the motivations the actions believable within a certain context right because you can't you can't be cassavetes for everything right you do have (laughs) like you do have to kind of have a little bit of a story arc Mm -hmm. but it's i i I really think black christmas should be shown in in film schools in general just for this is how you keep it believable within the confines of this is still a movie yeah yeah, I the whole time I was watching the movie, I wanted to just keep writing notes in my notebook being like, yeah, that makes sense. Ooh, those actions actually make sense. That dialogue is believable. The the way they're approaching all these situations all makes sense. And Marco Kidder just kind of steals the show as as the drunk one, right? <laughs> like yes. she she has so many good li- like she has the best like like they get the obs- first obscene phone call and and some girl says says something to the effect of like, who do you think it was, or do you think it was a prank call, and or some pervert? And she says, oh no, it's the Mormon Tabernacle Choir doing their <laughs> annual obscene phone call. Like she's so. That's the other thing too. They're all perfectly developed characters, right? They're not not just oh we we have five sorority girls who get killed. Like they're mm-hmm. so or even Andrea Martin, uh, who later went on to be on SCTV, um, her character isn't just the oh the girl with glasses who's dorky and probably the the smart studious one. Like she is so endearing and so well developed. And the relations between the two like I remember at one point, I think it's even after what Margot Kidder says, this other girl said, you know, she didn't mean it, Barb. Like, it's it's so tight and smart. And, and yeah, I really, I, I could talk about Black Christmas all day. <laughs> uh, the last thing I'll say about it is my favorite piece of trivia I learned about it was that before Andrea Martin was cast, originally Gilda Radner was offered the part. Oh, and that, I love oh my God, that would have been... That I didn't know that that that's insane. Mm-hmm. And, and I love it because the character isn't an inherently funny one. I, I Margot Kidder I think does have the most funny lines in the movie, but it's so funny that you know two of the most iconic female Canadian comedians were were offered the same part. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting, and it's not the comedic relief character. Mm-hmm. It's Margot Kidder is kind of the comedic relief character. Yeah. Oh, and she has that brilliant like thing with the police. Oh, can you spell it out? And she's like, Oh, it's fellatio, and yeah. he spells it. Out. And then the idiot cop is like, No, this girl wanted to give me fellatio. <laughs> 
All right, let us move on. The next movie is one called Rituals. If you go down in the woods today, you're sure of a big surprise. If you go down in the woods today, you're sure of a big surprise. This animal has only been dead for a couple of hours. Look, Harry, somebody's playing a very sick game with us, and I want to know who, and I want to know why. If you go down in the woods today, you better go in disguise. People's dead, Harry. Was it a man? It's probably the the least known movie of the three you named, but it is about five doctors who go camping in the remote woods of northern Ontario. When their boots are stolen, they begin to suspect that they are being stalked. The film stars Hal Holbrook, but aside from being a Canadian version of Deliverance, is far more gritty and grimy, feeling like a precursor to something like the Blair Witch Project, which you've already brought up. The film is in dire need of a remastering, but the lo-fi nature of it makes it feel like feel like a home video gone wrong. How did this movie come across your radar? It was really down to it showed up on Shutter one day, and 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 I watched it because I had heard of it before. I think I had seen some. Remember that cable horror channel Scream. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they had a a brief thing about it in, in Canadian horror in general. And just the weird subvert... Because I, I don't even think they mention at any point, oh yeah, we're in Canada, we're in Ontario. But there's weird hints to it too where it's, it just feels so Canadian. And I think in particular, they're always drinking molson or, or some canadian beer brand during it because they're camping blah 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 and an, another thing that yeah like it, it is a little like i'm sure they pitched oh yeah this is basically deliverance when they were trying to get financing so it's these middle-aged guys which i think adds the to the horror too like these aren't kids right like these mm-hmm. are theory grown ass people who can't get out of the situation, right? Another thing I really like too about it is just there's that weird, like just archetypal 70s, like harmonica and strings theme at the beginning of the movie. And then at the end of credits, when the guy's just sitting on the road and the sunset is coming up and it, 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 it's, it's, a little sweet in, 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 in weird ways. Right. Yeah. You, you could definitely sort of feel the seventies Canadiana to it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once again, I, I feel like the concept of logic permeates this movie as well. You know, you already mentioned that these are middle-aged guys, so they're, they're not teenagers. So they're already sort of thinking about, okay, we need to think like adults and not be irrational things like that. But also on the fact that they're all doctors. So yeah. when, when they start to get hurt, they're like, okay, this is what it probably is. This is what we need to do to make sure this person stays safe and they don't get infected. Okay. Do we have to consider amputation? All this sort of stuff that goes on makes the dialogue seem so intelligent and realistic as well yeah like that's another added thing too of okay uh, you know in a horror movie there'll be a situation where people are stranded or trapped and someone's injured and they don't know how to deal with it and in this context they do 
but it doesn't it doesn't matter right if someone's determined enough to kill you and you don't have a means of escape they're going to kill you right which adds to the tension and fear of it right so oh we have a an easy like like in a lesser movie they would have made them maybe more vulnerable but this was almost a a Although you could also argue that because they're all doctors, that's a way of keeping them alive longer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I it, it just comes into the, you know, how do we make this horror movie different? What's, a, what's an angle we can do to make this different and not different from Deliverance, for example? And, okay, well, maybe they're all doctors, right? And that feeds into, and it also is just a very simple, okay, well, what are, what's an example of, why are these guys all going fishing? Oh, well, maybe they all work together or they're all associates or all know each other through the, okay, what's the job? Oh, well, let's say they're all doctors, right? It could have been just as simple as that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The movie also has some some clear undertones in it as well because there's a scene, a very brief scene, where uh, where one of the characters admits that he had a, a failed relationship with another man, and unfortunately, it does lead to a, a bit of a, a homophobic outburst from one of the other characters. But I was still sort of surprised at just how matter of factly it was just inserted in the middle of an argument that the two men were having, and then it was just kind of moved on. We're just like, okay, this is just who this person is, which I thought was so so fascinating for a film from 1977. Actually, yeah, I I watched it with my boyfriend, and we were really surprised by it and how like you occasionally see movies like from the 70s where there's a queer character and it's done surprisingly thoughtfully and surprising like it we were we almost we i think we even rewound it to make sure we heard it right and we were quite impressed by it and it, it it's kind of a sad reminder too of how in the 70s the gay rights movement was gaining a lot of steam and making a lot of progress and then the aids ap- epidemic stopped it and reversed it a lot where we didn't really get a footing again till the mid nineties. So that's a kind of an interesting thing too, that you really see in horror movies and movies in general before the AIDS epidemic happened, where you don't really see it in the eighties and, and even the early nineties because, because of, of, of all the stigma and hate that the queer community got um, because of the AIDS epidemic. So that, that was an interesting thing that I, I'm, I'm happy you brought up. Mm-hmm. I've never put that together. And that's like a very obvious thing, but I've actually never put those two, like two and two together for that. That's really interesting. It's hard. Like it's, it's just a thing to, because if you were born at a certain time, you, you don't even necessarily think about, and that's even true. it also has to have the context too, of knowing about the queer movement in the seventies, right? Mm-hmm. Because if yeah. you don't know about that and the progress that was made, then it's assumed, okay, well, this was just a natural th- trajectory of, okay, things got better, 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 better. Right. But it, it's kind of something that goes against our intuition of how rights movements work. Um, because we are, 
kind of trained to think it's a natural trajectory towards the top. And that's not always the case. Sometimes there's progress made and then a giant dip in the progress that has been made. Uh, And then the last thing I want to kind of touch on with this movie is, is this possibly the most unsafe movie ever made or one of them? Because I'm watching this movie and the, the main, you know, inciting incident is that they get their boots stolen. So most of the guys are just in their socks and then they have plastic bags over their feet. And I'm, I would hope they had some sort of foot protection going on under there, but they're walking around on, you know, on rocks and hilly forests, all that sort of stuff. They're trudging through the water and all this time you could see that they don't really have any real safety precautions going on. And I know this was a different era of filmmaking, but like as a director, do you watch stuff like this and and just like hope that these actors were being taken care of? I viscerally thought when I was watching this thinking this was a nightmare to film. (laughs) I would never write a, I would never agree just because I'm not a camping person in general. (laughs) So with that aside, I did, I did viscerally think like, okay, the mosquitoes, the muck and mire of this, they're not acting. Yeah. That's mm. real. I re- and again, I really, I doubt they got to the end of this without some form of injury or at the very least heavy mosquito rash. Just <laughs> filming, filming that. And again, I, I, I even thought too, like, Oh my God, bringing the generators to shoot this thing. How many times were they like, Fuck! I wish I didn't sign on to this movie. I could have worked it. I could. I, I. I could have done so many other things than this movie. Yeah. Just because of the. Because the thing is, horror can be a ton of fun to film. Like screaming, pretending to be scared, all the fun gore and guts and goo and this and that. But I don't. I get the sense this was not a particularly fun film to make yeah yeah i agree i would like to scan all of you in this room one at a time there are four billion people on earth 237 are scanners they'll control your mind conquer your will manipulate your body like a toy self-destruct five seconds the pain begins in your flesh in your brain Four seconds. You feel its power. Three seconds. The pressure. The pounding. The terror. Two All right. I want to move on to our last movie, and it is the king of Canadian horror, and that's David Cronenberg and his film Scanners. The film came out right before his massive breakthrough, both artistically and monetarily. And while it's more of a thriller rather than scary, it still features plenty of disgusting body horror. In it, after a man with extraordinary and frighteningly destructive telepathic abilities is nabbed by agents from a mysterious rogue corporation, he discovers he is far from the only possessor of such strange powers, and that some of the other scanners have their minds set on world domination, while others are trying to stop them. As someone whose work is much more minimalist minimalist compared to Cronenberg's over-the-top exploration of the human body and its limits, what draws you into the world of DC? My initial interaction with David Cronenberg was The Fly, 
And the reason I, the first time I saw it, I think it's because my mom had rented it because my mom really l- likes the movie The Fly. And <laughs> Jeff Goldblum. So that, it's a Jeff Goldblum thing. It's <laughs> not just, yeah. And that, too, just the feelings and things like The yeah. Fly. Um, when I was initially emailing you guys, I, I, I said, well, can we do The Fly? But you said, well, I don't know if that's technically Canadian horror, which it's not like it was American funding, mm-hmm. but it still feels like such a Toronto movie. Yeah, like 100%. You watch it, it's like, this is Toronto, right? Like, which obviously adds to the horror. Um, I kid, I kid. But um, <laughs> so that was what got me into it, too. And then when I became a teenager, I started getting into more of his back catalog um and of course watched scanners which on top of the entire meme of the exploding head thing is such a such a methodical artsy movie i I, like and here's here's a hard thing i am not necessarily always the best at articulating why i like a movie or not which is why i don't think i could ever be a, a film critic like i couldn't necessarily write down okay here's why i like the movie here's why i didn't scanners is one of those movies i i can't even necessarily articulate why i appreciate or enjoy it that much i was able to watch my friend had a blu-ray of it so i invited Mm. him over to watch it this past weekend um for this pod um so that i would it would be fresh in my mind for this podcast because black christmas i've seen a billion times i don't need to rewatch to talk about but i'd be interested to hear your guys thoughts on scanners what are my thoughts i you know what i find that i I think is interesting and it's kind of common to what you're talking about with black christmas and with your own movies is scanners is a very very atmospheric movie on its own like i find it to be maybe it's because it is toronto and it is like a certain time period but i find it to be an incredibly atmospheric film despite the big you know set pieces that they do with it and you know they everyone always focuses on the exploding head like you mentioned but there's so many other things in this film um that i think are very worthwhile to discuss and i like michael ironside alone like he's somebody that i think you can pinpoint his entire like he's not even in it like no he is but he's it's it's a i find this one of those interesting movies that it was one of the probably one of my first five cronenbergs i saw because i i watched a couple and then i went to go watch them in chronological order um so this is one of his earlier ones and i think it's incredibly cronenberg i think that this is kind of the movie that you start to get that cronenbergian thing to him that has made him so successful and I do I do really like this movie. It's one of I think one of my top Cronenberg movies probably. I've noticed too, so outside of the obvious body horror, with Cronenberg you'll often see a plot like this where it's a mystery to uncover, mm-hmm. but done in a very specific way where you'll have someone, they'll go to see someone, someone will fill them in on it. So it's almost his weird take on doing a procedural where and and he has a very explicit kind of cold dialogue and 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 it really reminded me of videodrome 
just in the way some like there's a guy or a person they they uncover this idea this mystery they go on a quest and they meet this incredibly odd character and there always seems to be a overarching organization or shadowy company and and there always seems to be two versions of it so for the example in this there's the medical company and then there's the underground uh faction of scanners um which you see mimicked in video drum so video drum there's the tv company and then through the a guy's interest in pirated signals, he finds Videodrome, right? The underground, right? And you see that mimicked a lot. Or even in The Fly, right? You have mainstream science and you have the the uh, mad scientist, right? Right, right? So it, it, you see that a lot with Cronenberg is the dichotomy of the two organizations, two entities, one who's typically the corporate side and the other is the without, right? So the the rogue, right? And you can also see mirrors in that in the body horror aspect. So you have the standard body and then the horror of it, right? Mm-hmm. And the way it kind of overlaps and 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 that whole thing. I think Cronenberg, for as innovative as he is, I think you hit it on the nail there of saying, like, he can be very formulaic. But what I find really fascinating about him is that even though it's formulaic and you can see the threads when you kind of take a step back, all of his movies, not all of them, actually, he does have some stinkers, but it's like they're all very exciting and they're all very interesting films. And he manages to kind of not make two films seem the exact way. Um, despite having that formula. And I would also say a lot of people have tried to copy Cronenberg and have been inspired by Cronenberg for good reason. Um, but I don't know if, I actually don't think at all that there's anybody that has done Cronenberg like Cronenberg, which I find very, very impressive after all these years. Another thing I would, and this came from me just rewatching Scanners with my friend. He has a particular thing with dialogue that he writes and I said to my friend, like, you know, you need an amazing cast to make this dialogue work. Because if you didn't have a good actor, it is just so ridiculous, right? Like, they're talking yeah. about this, oh, ridi- like, it, it's almost comic book-esque. <laughs> or, or, or ridi- uh, oh, but we did this, but we'll do this. And, and then, but if you had a bad cast, it would not, it no. would be so laughable. But because he casts his movie so well it it reads it sings you don't you don't laugh at it right yeah he he very much has found a way to make a very specific form of dialogue which can read very cold um uh work work in a certain way i think he has like a vision or like a sonic vision in his head of how he wants his dialogue to sound and then he's able to get that out of his actors. Like I, I find him, I could talk about Cronenberg endlessly. I think that he's just such a fascinating director. Cause like you said, one, he casts him, his characters really, really well, but he also knows how to get exactly what he's looking for. Like all of those hits. Cause you're right. If any other actor, anybody else like handling those scenes um, from an actor's point, but also from a director's point, it would be ridiculous. Like it would be so campy and cheesy and, 
honestly just kind of stupid. The dialogue with Peach is kind of stupid, yeah. but somehow the way he does it, it reads. I like it sounds really stupid or sounds kind of odd to say Shakespearean, but it's like yeah, it's like bland no, Shakespeare. Like it's this kind of cold Shakespearean way, um, but it's very very unique to him, though. Um, again, very impressive, very impressive human being, David Cronenberg. Another thing too is just the weird world building, right? So mm-hmm. someone will bring up something like, okay, so we know this amount of scanners, this, that. And in this world, you're you're guessing whether is this common knowledge or is this yeah. just this underground group of people who are aware of the and he has this way and you see it. I, I think the biggest example would be Naked Lunch, right? Where mm. um people will bring up things and you'll wonder, is this just the world they inhabit or is this this underground world that is in the world that we exist in? Right. And he, he's a kind of master at like doing that and uh, having someone explain it without feeling like you're having these things over explained to you. And there's a lot of rules in his movies, like in the worlds that he builds, there are these like, these rules but like you said he doesn't he doesn't have them like listed out for us to read them but we do but you do second guess what the rules are and it's almost part of the mystery thing that you were talking about earlier and like it's piecing together what exactly is going on in this world what is the right thing in relation to the world and what is like out of pocket for this world another thing that just feels so it feels like these two things go together his frequent composer collaborator is it Howard Shore? Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Like it feels like that's such a like if you were to ever do a parody of a Cronenberg movie, you would <laughs> need someone to mimic the Howard the super dramatic like <laughs> that Howard Shore um, does, and I feel most iconically in in The Fly, right? Yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah, I uh, I do want to you know bring back the point that Rachel made about uh, calling out Michael Ironside, and I just want to say how mad I am that Michael Ironside was not the biggest actor in the eighties and nineties because he should have absolutely been. He he basically turns in a performance that you can expect from someone like Jack Nicholson in this movie, yeah. and yeah. he should have been a star. It's great that he's still getting work, but like he should have been bigger. But he's not a star, though. He's not the actor that is, like, a leading star. He is, like, that guy. He is the dude that you're like, oh, that guy. But he's good. Like, you know what I mean? He's the character of his generation. I think, yeah, Yeah. even though those guys don't necessarily make it big or they're not the the big, big movie, A-list movie stars, they do serve a purpose. And when you do it well, and and that Ironside does do it very, very well um, in everything that he does, uh, I, I think that's worth more than being, you know, the superstar dude, the like the it guy. Because he also doesn't have a face to be an it guy, and I mean that it's true, in yeah, in a very like respectful way. <laughs> he doesn't does like he has an interesting face. It's not just kind of a bland, boring, you know, beautiful Brad Pitt face. No offense, to Brad Pitt, but it's like he has a very interesting face, and so it would almost be a waste for him to just become a Hollywood superstar. I noticed in this one, and this was a bit like, because like I was watching with my friend, we're having drinks, blah, blah, blah. The main actor in this is that face. 
and he, <laughs> he is so it's almost like he's reading like he's remembering the lines like I'm, 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 yeah like, like i i don't think he's a professional act like i think he's my friend said he was an artist and this wasn't his main thing. So I don't know if there was some weird creative casting and it kind of works for this movie too, because he's kind of this naive, naive guy. Like he doesn't have the brooding factor that you see from protagonists in, in, in other Cronenberg movies. He, he's, he does kind of stand out to the rest of the cast where the rest of the cast is like, Oh, and then, and when, when we'll do this and this and then he's like, but what does that mean? Like he's, yeah. he's not, it's a good thing. He's a, a scanner and can read into <laughs> other people's minds. Cause there's, it doesn't feel like there's a lot in his. <laughs> yeah. The acting in the, the film is definitely carried by Ironside, Jennifer O'Neill yeah. and Patrick McGowan. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, awesome. That was, that was a lot of fun talking about some, some Canadian horror films. Uh, I loved that you picked ones that came from uh, the mid seventies to the early eighties. It sort of really encapsulates a certain era of, of Canadian filmmaking and one that I think you yourself have sort of carried on, you know, Skinnermering takes place in, in the mid nineties, but it has that very retro aesthetic to it. And, and you sort of feel where maybe some of that DNA has seeped into your own work. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Like seventies, and it's almost it it's 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 almost kind of bad. Like I swear, it could be the worst movie ever. But if it's super seventies, I'm gonna watch it. There's just something <laughs> about that era of green yeah. and zooms and like the seventies. I I I'm I'm all here for it. Um, so I want to just um kind of tie into. So I was. I don't think I'm telling anything out of school because it's going to be published soon, but um, the Globe and Mail um, is going to publish a list of the great Canadian horror movies. And I was very flattered that I was um, approached for this. I believe they'll mention Skinnamarink in the article. Amazing. And they asked me to say what my favorite Canadian horror movie was, which of course I said black Christmas and I wrote a little 50 word blurb on it. So I do envision a problem for them though. Cause I have a feeling almost everyone's going to say black Christmas. <laughs> so I don't know if they're going to have difficulty with like, say, Oh shit, we should have brought in this. We should have said, please don't, pick black because it, it it's hard to go because the thing about black christmas it'll is it'll frequently be featured on greatest horror of all time in general lists mm-hmm. so it's hard for us not to go right to that but you know you can only talk about citizen kane so many times you can only talk about black christmas so many times i guess yeah <laughs> Well, Kyle, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I know you've been busy working on your follow-up project to Skinnamarink, and you can't talk much about it, but are you able to let listeners know uh, where you are in the process of it? Yeah, so I finished. So I started writing early July, and I finished a rough, rough, rough draft Um uh, just under a month ago and I've been slowly going through the dreaded second draft phase, which I'm almost done. Cause the second draft is always the worst. Cause the second draft 
you get the all, all the oh this doesn't work this does, it's all it's this roller coaster doing the second draft in the way the first draft is so fun and rewarding in, in its own right the third draft is a lot of polishing so oh how can i this scene definitely stays in how like really the third draft is a lot of okay the movie is set how do i make this and this and this and this better but the second draft is a nightmare and and I'm I'm happy to report that I am almost finished the second draft and hopefully hopefully I'll have the script done fairly soon and hopefully we can go into production early next year, fingers crossed. So And I feel like you've made it pretty clear on social media that this is not going to be Skinamarink 2. Yeah. Although I do appreciate all the memes people make about Skinamarine <laughs> sequels, so keep those coming. And also I do want to make very clear that this will be horror with no holdbacks. It's not gonna be a oh it's horror, but this is horror. Like this is going to be horror. Awesome. Well hopefully it doesn't take me nine months to uh get up Just- the courage to watch it this time. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> uh, now, if listeners wish to learn more about your work or you, what, what's the best place to go, Kyle? Uh, Twitter is always good. I'm just at Kyle Edward Ball on Twitter. And there is my YouTube channel, but I haven't posted to that in forever. But um, it seems like just judging from the comment notifications I get that it's still fairly active comment community on there. Um, but, um, really just at Kyle Edward ball, as, as, if, if, if Twitter is still there when you get to it, cause it feels like it's this weird sinking ship that no one really wants to leave. Because, I can attest to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like people are like, and people, we bitch about it and there's reason to bitch about it, but like, I'm. I, I don't want to jump to any other platform. Like I really do. Twitter can be so fun, particularly comedy. Twitter is so fun. Like there's a certain thing about comedy tweets that don't read on other platforms. And that's, that that's my thing. Well, we really appreciate you taking your time today and talking with us. Thank you so much. Thank you to the Contra zoom pod listeners. And thank you Dakota and Rachel. <laughs> thanks kyle and rachel what about you have you been i know you've been off for the last couple of weeks but is there anything that you're working on that you want to promote or just where people can find you go rachelho.com um it's really old now it's almost a year old now but i will just uh what's the word i will promote the uh interview i did with kyle um back in i think it came out in january um of this year and that's on exclaim because that was a lot of fun to do if you think I haven't already pulled that up and saved that yeah. to include in the show notes, you are sorely mistaken and forget how thoughtful I am. <laughs> it's a good, it's a, I, I was very, I'm very, like, there's a few pieces that I've written that I'm quite happy with, and that's one of them. It is a great one. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to include both your original review of the film and your interview with him as well. Cool. Thank you. This has been a That Shelf podcast. Visit thatshelf.com for more great film discourse. Follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and threads at ContraZoomPod. 
What are your favorite Canadian horror movies? Send an email to contrazoompod at gmail.com. There's a few people in particular. I'm very curious to hear uh, what their favorites are, whether it's uh, Brody or Cal McNabb or Taylor Beaumont. They're all big uh, horror movie fans, so I'm, I'm curious to see if they've got some interesting picks as well. But uh, thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we post all episodes there as well. And if you really like the show, consider tipping us on coffee. Thanks for checking us out. Mm-hmm.